Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Greg Masters, your host for the program, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru, and the publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com. This is the first broadcast in, in the weekly series, ACO Watch, a midweek review. And I am, excuse me, <laughs> this is the first broadcast in the weekly series, ACO Watch, a midweek review, where we'll monitor, analyze, and discuss the emergence of market entrants as accountable care organizations. With the March 2010 passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, accountable care organizations, or ACOs, have taken center stage. Each day we hear about this or that conference, workshop, retreat, or webinar, or read in print or online media, including digital, interactive, or social networks, about physicians, payers, or institutional health systems contemplating the formation of an ACO. There's even a parody video titled In Search of an ACO, which is a must-see for context, if not entertainment value. The recent YouTube count is in excess of 50,000 views since its release in August of this year. With only broad guidance reflected in the Patient uh, the Affordable Care Act to date, the heavy lifting is no doubt in front of us, and there's much to be written into regulations about ACOs, including how are they structured, who qualifies for certification, what and what, how and what are they measuring and perhaps enforcing, and more on point, how will ACOs enable the paradigm shift away from a volume-driven fee-for-service medicine to a pay-for-quality or outcomes approach? On the program today, I'm pleased to be joined by three experts in health law, including Peter Rich, David Klatsky, and Gary Davis, all partners in the law firm of McDermott, Will, and Emory, LLP. Peter co-chairs the firm's insurance and payers affinity group, and for over 30 years, he's practiced almost exclusively in the health law field and routinely advises hospitals, medical groups, health plans, and other insurers, as well as other industry clients in negotiating and structuring managed care and other health industry transactions, including major Medicare demonstration projects and on a wide variety of other transactions and health regulatory matters. David Klatsky focuses his practice on the transactional and regulatory aspects of mergers, acquisitions, and joint ventures involving hospitals and health systems, group purchasing organizations, health plans, ambulatory surgery centers, medical groups, and other health care providers. David is the past co-chair of McDermott's Healthcare Mergers and Acquisitions Group. Gary Scott Davis is a board-certified health law attorney as recognized by the Florida Bar Board of Legal Specialization and Education. He focuses his practice on managed care, emerging health benefits plans, strategic restructurings and reorganizations, joint ventures, and related transactional and regulatory reimbursement issues. He's been involved in the formation, acquisition, disposition, restructuring, and reorganization of health maintenance organizations, TPAs, hospitals, independent physician organizations, ambulatory surgery centers, PHOs, home health agencies, and DME companies. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, this is Peter Rich uh, talking. I'm going to introduce uh, David Klasky in a moment to give a little uh, intro. 
Uh, but I think a major point here that everyone needs to keep in mind uh, is that while the Medicare regulations under Section 3022 of the PPACA that uh, establish <laughs> Medicare fee-for-service accountable care organizations have not yet been issued, and there's really no way to know when they'll be issued, but one can guess it'll probably be at this point, uh, February or later of 2011. Uh, the final objective that providers are looking toward is the January 1, 2012 initial contracting under that shared savings program. Uh, in an obscure provision of the Act uh, that not so many people are aware of, uh, ACO applicants, uh, organizations that are applying for ACO status, will actually get an advantage if they already have experience in uh, ACO-type entities. And we're already seeing ACOs being formed uh, under contracts with commercial insurers as demonstration projects, particularly several uh, Dartmouth-Brookings pilot projects, uh, including in Southern California, uh, the Anthem Blue Cross uh, arrangements with healthcare partners and Monarch, which are large physician organizations, as well as others around the country involving Tucson Medical Center, Carillion Clinic, and other entities that involve other types of providers. So while the Medicare fee-for-service accountable care organization regulations are not out yet, and of course there are no contracts and won't be until 2012, uh, providers are, are already... Uh, proceeding to form ACO arrangements uh, in uh, anticipation of 2012 and for commercial purposes. Why? Well, I think David Klasky is going to talk a little bit about that next. Go ahead, David. Thank you, Peter. And uh, Greg, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to uh, join you today. Uh, you know, the ACL phenomenon comes along at a very interesting uh, time with the uh, seismic political shifts uh, that we've witnessed in the recent election. And yet, um, it is clear to, uh, to close observers of the industry that uh, the political shifts in Washington should have very little effect on the evolution of ACOs. Uh, ACOs are, in fact, uh, primarily originally a Republican idea, um, and there is certainly uh, broad bipartisan consensus uh, that uh, the ACO model is one that should uh, be explored in, in, in any kind of Medicare reform. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, really uh, one, ultimately, of... Uh, Medicare financing. Uh, we've heard a lot in the news lately about the President's Bipartisan Deficit Reduction Commission and uh, the many draconian proposals uh, that that commission and, uh, and, and another uh, independent bipartisan commission have put forward recently. Well, there is no greater challenge uh, to uh, correcting the, 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 the fiscal imbalances uh, in this country than to address the uh, conundrum of uh, government health care program finance. Uh, you know, we have a situation currently where uh, we're spending, you know, $2.4 trillion a year on health care, which represents 17% of GDP. Uh, that is tremendously higher than that seen in any other uh, industrialized country. And unfortunately, 
both that spending and and spending as a percentage of GDP is uh, fated to increase quite substantially over the next 20 years. Uh, you know, we currently uh, have a situation, uh, we, well, if you want to look back 10 years ago, uh, we had about 43 million seniors covered by Medicare. Uh, two years ago, the first baby boomers became Medicare eligible. And 20 years from now, in 2030, when the last baby boomers will have come into Medicare eligibility, Medicare will be covering uh, approximately 78 million people. That's an 80% increase over the current uh, program. Similarly, uh, you know, the health reform bill aims to ensure an additional 33 million individuals, more than half of whom are expected to uh, be covered by uh, Medicaid or other state health programs such as the S-CHIP program, uh, such that, you know, by by the uh, the end of the same period, I think we will, you know, be looking at uh, about 20% of annual health care spending coming out of uh, Medicaid and the uh, uh, children's health insurance programs. So, you know, what does this tell us about the necessity of pushing forward with ACOs? The reality is that uh, providers over the next 20 years are really not going to be able to survive unless they learn how to be profitable at government reimbursement rates, something which virtually no providers would claim to be able to do today. ACOs represent one of the most promising avenues in which to uh, learn collectively how to uh, practice in a more efficient manner, uh, which at the same time uh, presents the prospect through better care coordination of actually improving uh, not only outcomes on a clinical level, but also uh, patient satisfaction with that experience of care. Uh, so, you know, what, uh, you know, that, that tells us what uh, ACOs are intended to achieve, uh, but, you know, there is certainly a lot uh, in the Medicare bill uh, that has, uh, that, that does not address, uh, or, or let's say there are a lot of challenges associated with ACOs um, that have not yet been answered, and I know that uh, Peter uh, is going to speak to some of those. Right. Let's talk about a few issues because there are actually myriad uh, questions uh, that need answering. But on a practical business level, uh, one of the key questions that's been raised about the Medicare fee-for-service ACO concept uh, is that uh, Medicare beneficiaries uh, will not in any way be locked in or otherwise incentivized under the terms of the statute to utilize the ACO-contracted providers. Uh, the primary care physician uh, to whom the uh, individual Medicare beneficiary will be assigned, and under the statute there have to be at least 5,000 in the ACO, and uh, the ACO contract is a three-year contract under which uh, the 
ACO and its providers would be compensated based upon shared savings received, assuming they meet quality standards, uh, against a three-year look-back benchmark, average per capita cost for Medicare beneficiaries uh, in that particular area. Well, if the beneficiaries are not locked in or otherwise incentivized to stay within the network, uh, what is to prevent them from doing what has occurred in other contexts with PPOs and traditional insurance, where, where the uh, providers uh, have not been able to prevent uh, the beneficiaries from seeing out-of-network providers who then charge far higher rates and may not provide cost-effective care. And what does that do in terms of accountability? How can you be accountable for a patient population over which you have little or no control beyond persuasion? And that may be a, a central uh, question for Medicare fee-for-service ACOs. It's important to note that that is not an issue for ACOs, uh, necessarily an issue for ACOs that are formed under contract with commercial plans for commercial insureds. Uh, those uh, ACO arrangements can be structured in uh, ways that more traditionally mimic uh, managed care arrangements with financial incentives uh, that uh, would cause the beneficiaries to stay within the, the network. And I think eventually that's going to have to be a tweak uh, to the Medicare fee-for-service uh, ACO concept if it's going to be able to be successful. Uh, the other issue uh, that's arisen is what about uh, legal impediments. And at the October 5th workshop that was put on by CMS, the Office of the Inspector General, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Justice, they explored uh, the need for a number of new safe harbors or other types of exceptions or waivers from the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, the CMP Law, and perhaps most importantly at a threshold uh, matter is the uh, antitrust laws. Um, and there was uh, particularly some very promising response from the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department on uh, you know, the pro-competitive nature of ACOs and how they fit into the favorable advisory opinions that uh, the Federal Trade Commission uh, has previously issued involving similar physician hospital organizations. Uh, and a feeling that uh, there will be uh, you know, a hard look to make sure that these entities are not anti-competitive in nature, that their goal is not to increase costs, but that ACOs that are pro-competitive, that do, are intended to enhance quality, uh, will be looked at uh, favorably by the antitrust regulators. Um, it, it is also hoped that the Office of the Inspector General uh, and CMS will take the same approach under the anti-kickback statute, Stark, and the CMP law. Uh, again, uh, if an ACO is formed in reality uh, to spur referrals of patients to uh, hospitals by physicians uh, or to uh, unduly restrict Medicare services uh, to individual members, then, uh, then of course, uh, a as a threshold matter, they likely won't meet the quality standards that are, uh, that are required for all ACOs, but they may also face liability under these uh, various anti-fraud statutes. Uh, but there is supposed to be some flexibility in terms of new safe harbors and waivers flowing out of the ACO workshop. Another practical issue with ACOs is uh, how are we going to attract, how are ACOs going to attract a sufficient number of physicians, both primary care physicians and specialists, uh, where the uh, the shared savings uh, is contingent, 
And particularly, as I mentioned before, there's no uh, control over the beneficiary's use of outside services. Uh, and indeed, the statute provides that the Secretary of Health and Human Services doesn't even have to pay the shared savings due an ACO uh, if uh, there's no money to do so, uh, which uh, uh, has created some cynicism on the part of many uh, physicians, particularly specialists who are already very disappointed with the levels of Medicare reimbursement and are considering pulling out of Medicare altogether. Will ACOs be able to attract the full panoply of providers necessary for them to provide the services uh, required uh, to the beneficiaries is a, is a threshold question that's going to be very interesting. Uh, physician leadership, uh, if you looked at the new AMA principles, uh, the position they're taking is essentially 100% physician leadership and all ACO dollars uh, going to uh, patient care. Uh, perhaps a little uh, impractical in looking at ACOs as we do. Uh, we see that they are highly capital intensive, and while some very large physician groups like Healthcare Partners and Monarch in Southern California will be able to uh, proceed to form ACOs on their own, in most cases around the country, hospitals will need to be involved uh, to provide capital uh, to fund the ACO formation. And if they're nonprofit hospitals, uh, particularly, uh, but I think even for-profit hospitals, they're not going to be particularly uh, willing or able legally uh, to have the ACO uh, board totally controlled by physicians. Uh, I think everyone agrees physicians, and particularly primary care physicians, will be in a leadership capacity. Uh, but uh, there, you know, is a, a practical level where certain, particularly with exempt organizations, they're going to be required to have certain supermajority voting rights over key decisions in order to preserve their exempt status in participating in an ACO. So a lot of these legal issues will have to work themselves out. And another matter, of course, is that given that ACOs are capital intensive, obviously uh, a significant portion of the revenues will need to go back to fund the ACO's operations. Indeed, participating physicians may be required to uh, help to fund those operations as well uh, to avoid uh, similar legal issues. So those are just some of the uh, of probably the more salient uh, legal issues that are uh, involved. Then there's a whole uh, additional area that is crucial to the ACO's uh, success, and that is going to be how it structures uh, payment, pay for performance, and other compensation among the various providers. And Gary Davis is going to discuss uh, those and some related issues. Thanks, Peter. Um, a significant challenge that's going to be faced by the operators of accountable care organizations is, as Peter mentioned, the distribution and allocation of compensation to the various providers that are involved in caring for the patients. And by definition, accountable care organizations will have to render care across a continuum of providers with each provider constituency seeking as large a portion of the pool of money as possible. Um, the, the first and, and foremost challenge that the ACOs will face is that the laws that are going to be initially applicable in evaluating the legality of how these payment systems work were developed under a fee-for-service model for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and almost by definition, the old fee-for-service models and the types of models that the ACOs will want to develop are diametrically opposed to each other. Um, the compensation systems that accountable 
care organizations will be looking at are by their very nature intended to change and affect the clinical behavior of providers, in part trying to get them to migrate to what the ACO establishes as best clinical practices within that organization. Um, if you take a look at the little bit of guidance that has been made available by the government um, in advisory opinions, either with respect to gain-sharing arrangements or with respect to pay-for-performance, uh, one of the safeguards that the government always looks for in the programs that are being reviewed are checks and balances that would give the government comfort and assurance that the payments being made to the physicians would in fact have no effect on their clinical judgment and that the physicians would remain free to make whatever judgments they felt were in the best interest of the patient rather than making judgments that were in the best interest of their financial rewards. So that's going to be a challenge that's out there. Uh, three classes of laws um, that present substantial hurdles going forward, uh, the anti-kickback statute, uh, the Stark requirements and the civil monetary penalty requirements uh, all will come into play as accountable care organizations try to develop their reimbursement models. Uh, the legislation that was passed includes the ability for the secretary to issue waivers for accountable care organizations with respect to each of those statutes. Uh, there have been some initial hearings on what the scope of those waivers should be. The American Health Lawyers Association has issued a white paper, if you haven't seen it, walking through the pros and cons of various approaches that the Secretary may, state, may take with respect to those waivers. Um, it makes for a, a pretty easy and good read to give you an overview of what the issues are that are being debated in Washington right now with regard to those waivers. Uh, one big challenge will be that the waivers will likely only apply to entities that enter into contracts with CMS to be an accountable care organization for Medicare purposes. Uh, that will leave many other players out there who are looking at developing either accountable care organizations or developing internal programs to deliver accountable care without establishing a separate organization who may not be able to avail themselves of the protections that will be available through these waivers if, in fact, they are limited to organizations contracting with CMS. Peter? I'd like to talk a little bit about some other issues that haven't been mentioned yet uh, that are uh, of importance in ACO formation. Anyone forming an ACO will need to take a hard look at state uh, HMO insurance and third-party administrator or TPA licensing laws that may be applicable. In uh, many cases, we've found uh, state law really does not contemplate an unli unlicensed organization or entity like an ACO uh, receiving uh, risk-sharing payments such as capitation. And I think a lot of the uh, providers involved, particularly in California, uh, but in a number of other states, are looking toward uh, forms of partial or full capitation as being the ultimate end game for ACOs, particularly on the commercial side, but also on the Medicare side, where the PPACA does contemplate at least partial capitation, but leaves open the possibility that the Secretary may uh, include full capitation as another form of payment for ACOs. Um, that's been the California model. 
for many, many years. California providers uh, like Healthcare Partners and Monarch, as well as uh, medical foundations at Cedar Sinai and other uh, large hospital systems in California, and Hogue, for example, have a lot of experience um, with uh, capitation arrangements and believe that uh, they would prefer uh, that ACO arrangements uh, be compensated on that basis rather than uh, fee-for-service and shared savings, uh, which they believe uh, really has limited utility in cutting costs. Well, unfortunately, the statutes in a number of states uh, that we've looked at uh, would require that an ACO that wants to be capitated, in some cases even by an HMO, uh, has to have its own HMO license. Certainly if they want to be capitated by a self-funded employer directly, in many states an HMO license is required, which may be prohibitively costly and time-consuming to obtain. Uh, in other states, it's not. You have to take a careful look at the statute, whether an HMO or insurance-type license may be required for the type of contracting that the ACO wants to do. Uh, in any case, I think ACOs, because they're going to be adjudicating claims increasingly, uh, the payers are going to want them to do that because the new medical loss ratios applicable to health plans are going to provide a very strong financial incentive for health plans to delegate as much as they can to ACOs and other provider organizations of their administrative uh, burdens, such as provider relations and the like, in order to reduce uh, their costs to a minimum, uh, that are, the costs that are not related to uh, provision of direct patient care. Well, in that case, uh, they may well require the ACO to adjudicate claims, which in most states would require a TPA license. Another area that needs to be looked at is how to discipline physicians. If you're going to have an accountable care organization that works, physicians who are not following clinical protocols, uh, not uh, properly using electronic health records, uh, uh, not providing quality care, otherwise not meeting the standards of the ACO, are going to need to be disciplined. In fact, if you look at the Federal Trade Commission requirements uh, for clinical integration necessary to avoid uh, price fixing and other antitrust problems, uh, there's a virtually a requirement that they be enforced. Um, how does that interact with medical staff peer review at the hospital level? What sorts of protections are available in terms of immunity, if any, uh, from information that the ACO develops uh, uh, being provided to the, the public? Uh, can, the, can that information be privileged? Uh, those are all issues that are going to be faced over the next few years by ACOs uh, that are also quite significant. Greg, I don't know if you have any P particular follow-up questions. Peter, we're, we're getting close to the let end me here. just jump in because we're coming down almost three minutes left in our hard stop time frame here. But can a medical staff become an ACO? Well, a medical staff, yeah, in theory, uh, medical staffs uh, can become ACOs. You have to have some sort of legal organization. Uh, under the PPACA, and there are some medical staffs that are incorporated. Uh, you know, so in theory, they could be an ACO. Uh, I think there would be some uh, significant issues about uh, the lack of any um, selectivity on the part of the ACO in choosing its providers, um, and uh, and whether the medical staff uh, alone, unless it's obviously aligned with its hospital, uh, would be the appropriate. Uh, mechanism for uh, an ACO, but in theory it's possible. Uh, some rural hospitals may prefer that approach because they're going to have, uh, assuming that they can qualify by getting 5,000 members or they're assuming that there are waivers for rural hospitals to allow them to form their own ACOs, uh, some rural hospitals may want to do it that way. 
it's, it's certainly not impossible. And there have been a couple articles on uh, medical staff and uh, and ACOs uh, that have been published. Uh, in large urban centers, I don't think it's necessarily the ideal situation, though you know, certainly there's a strong push on the part of the AMA to allow all uh, physicians to participate in ACOs if they wish to do so. So, so let me ask you this. Is um, If there was a threshold question that you could put before physicians in private practice, so-called community medicine, as to whether or not they ought to be looking at this as an option or as a mandatory choice for their practice, what would you advise them? How would you advise? Them? How would you uh, have them assess that question? Yeah, Dave and Gary may may disagree with this comment, but I would say if you're not going to go into concierge medicine, uh, then you need to be part of an ACO eventually, in order because that they're going to become ubiquitous uh, in one way, shape, or form. David, Gary. Yeah, no, well, I, I, I think. Please go ahead, Gary. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I concur. I, I describe it when I speak about this is everybody's going to choose a team. And the concept of doctors having multiple medical staff memberships and practicing at different systems, I think, is going to fade away. I think that in order to get the synergies and the efficiencies and the integration that's going to be required, um, going to the earlier point about being able to make margin on Medicare people are really going to have to become lean, mean fighting machines, and that means choosing a side. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, we need to call a wrap to this one. We're coming up on about 40 seconds left. I want to thank uh, Peter Rich, David uh, Klatsky, and Gary Davis for their time today. Um, Dermot, Will, and Emery very active in advising hospitals, professional practitioners, institutional systems in guidance around ACO. They've got a foothold in the market already, considerable work and depth at their firm. Uh, if you want to contact them, mwe.com is their primary website. This is going to be a weekly uh, program on ACOs. Next week, we'll, my guest will be Dr. Ken Bottles, who will discuss key leadership issues in the formation of ACOs including the role of culture as a, in a, collab, a culture of collaboration in a highly competitive theater. Join us. Thank you. Peter, thanks. Gary, appreciate it. Hope we can do this again. A lot of information to pack into a very short time frame. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.